Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where you will learn why we are psyched up, the brain science behind the human story. My guest today is Dr. Paul Bloom, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and Brooks and Susan Reagan, professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University. Paul Bloom studies how children and adults make sense of the world with special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, and art. He has won numerous awards for his research and teaching. Paul is the past president of the Society for Philosophy and Psychology and co-editor of Behavioral and Brain Sciences. Professor Paul Bloom has written for scientific journals such as Nature and Science and for popular outlets such as the New York Times, The Guardian, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic Monthly. He is the author of seven books, including his newest, Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. Paul, welcome back, and thanks for coming here to help us sort of tease this out. I'm totally thrilled to be back. These are, <laughs> these are fun topics to talk about. So let's talk about this brain of ours, this mind of ours, and maybe even what is the difference between the two? Yeah. What I try to do in my book is sketch out the whole story of the modern science of psychology, how our minds work, how we think, how we make decisions, what, what we like and what we don't like. And the way I begin the book is with your question, which is what's the relationship between mental life, thinking, our experience, what it's like to be you, what it's like to be me, and our physical brains, these physical, you know, three pound, you know, gunky, bloody <laughs> things between our skulls. And and I begin with what I think is one of the great discoveries of psychology and maybe one of the great discoveries that humans have made in general, which is they're one and the same, that the mind is the brain. The brain is the mind. Our, all of our thoughts, all of our ideas are from the workings of this biochemical chunk of meat between our ears. And um, this doesn't mean that you could explain everything in terms of neuroscience. I'm very skeptical that you can. But it means that in the end, Everything we think, everything we believe, everything we feel is the result of physical processes in our brain. All right. Let me ask a question based on that. Because this is all happening between our ears, it's not always the truth, right? Everything we think, everything we feel is not always factual. It's our experience, but it's not necessarily the outer world reality. Absolutely. We have no direct access to truth. <laughs> I, you know, Boom. Everything is mediated through our senses. And so we get things wrong. 
And in fact, psychologists love to create visual illusions or auditory illusions where, where you know, you think this line's longer than that, but no, it isn't. And, and oh my God, those shapes are moving, but no, they're not. Because you could fool the system. The system is, is imperfect. It, it can't help but be imperfect. We're not gods. We perceive the world through our senses and we make sense of the world through our reasoning capacities, but we're imperfect and we often get things wrong. I think the thing to marvel about is how often we get things right, not just about the local environment. So I'm pretty good at making my way back to my house. Even though all of me is trapped in this physical brain, I use cues from the environment. I use my, my iPhone. I use the streetcar and I find my way home. But not just that, but in vast communities of people, we could learn about, about viruses and molecules. We could learn about galaxies. We could learn about things extraordinarily big and extraordinarily small and how we can kind of bootstrap our way from this very sort of solipsistic, finite shell that we're trapped in to learning about the universe is, is to me, an amazing question. Well, let me let me ask a question upon your question, and that is the nature of the human brain and its evolution. My sense or my hunch, and that may or may not be true, is that um, early primitive humans did not have the same capacities, and maybe they did, I don't know, as, as we do now. Brain capacity, neurocognition. <laughs> I think the answer to your question depends on how far back you go. If you go far enough back, you enter a species that has a share that, that from which both humans and chimpanzees arose from. And that species was very different from us. It did not have our mental powers. It most likely didn't have the power for language. It didn't have the power for imagination, for abstract thought. But on the other hand, if you cycle through to hunter-gatherer times before cities and email, electricity and world travel and vaccines, our ancestors had kind of the same brains that we do. And this leads to some very interesting consequences, which is a lot of what you see in how we think about the real world and deal with the real world doesn't make sense until you realize it comes from cognitive systems adapted for a much simpler time. So here's a sort of simple example. Somebody, somebody cuts me off when I'm driving and I'm really angry and I'm furious and I chase after them or they say something bad about me on Twitter. And I'm really steamed and it upsets me. And you say to me, look, it's a stranger. Who cares? But the answer is you and I have not evolved for a world of strangers. We've evolved in a world of, of small groups of people. And if they mess with you on Monday, they're going to mess with you on Tuesday, the <laughs> same people. So you better make them pay for it. You better take your, take your dignity very seriously. And so large scale anonymous interactions are just not what we're, what we're built for. I mean, another example that my clinical friends talk a lot about is that we live in a world very estranged from nature. At least, at least I do. Many of us do. And because our minds haven't evolved for that, that could lead to all sorts of problems as well. Well, I, I see your point in that the early man's mind was hardwired to protect him or herself from being eaten or assaulted by something greater than themselves, right? It was about survival. So it, that that primitive instinct sticks, right? That, That's right. But at the same time, the early human brain, was it designed to toggle as much as present humans' brains do? I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think that sort of 
revolutions we've had in technology and social media have, um, they've happened too fast to coincide with evolutionary changes. So, so the mind of my son, as he's on, you know, Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and so on, bouncing back and forth, um, is his mind is no different from that of somebody of, of basically somebody from 10,000 years ago who had none of those technologies. Evolution hasn't changed our minds. So we still have to face these modern problems with, um, with relative almost stone age minds. And again, I think that that, that, that makes life kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, some, some modern maladies, um, you know, become a, a result of that. Uh, I find things like, like, you know, I, I find fatty foods often irresistible. And from an evolutionary point of view, if you're in a place where you're always near starvation and food, fatty food is like the godsend, you should gobble it up and store it in fat. Well, that makes perfect sense then. If you live in a place of abundance, it would be great if our minds work differently and said, oh, no, that's disgusting. We don't want it. But our minds don't work differently. We're, oh, we're, we we're trapped it. in the past. We love it. <laughs> bacon. Bacon. French bacon fries. And, and, and hot, yeah. You can say bacon, French fries, hot fudge sundaes are modern technologies designed to tap age-old appetites. Fascinating. But, and, and what about our stress response to that? You talk about your son as the example, he who toggles through all these different social media platforms his brain, our brains, not necessarily being designed to do that. And yet the stress on the brain, you know, what it does to our nervous system when we're trying to do all of it, consume so much in a short period of time. It's an interesting question. I think some of the, this is not original to me, but the great stresses for an animal like us are often not physical. They don't involve, you know, lions charging at us or trees falling on our heads. They're social. They involve what we think about us and what people think about us, whether we're shunned, whether we're accepted. It's particularly of high intensity in adolescence where everything rides on this. And being social creatures, I don't know, I, <laughs> this is more of a personal thought, but, but I'm old enough to remember a time where you would kind of live your life, you go to school, you hang out with people, and you spend time alone, and a social world didn't impinge upon you. Yeah. But now, three in the morning, I can open up my phone and see if my friends like me. And see where I stand in the status hierarchy. And I think this puts us on sort of high alert socially all the time. And again, this is a case where there's a mismatch between what our brains have evolved to do and how they cope in the modern world. And does the brain recognize the difference between it being a perceived threat versus an actual one? In other words, the body's response to that is as if it, there were a mortal threat when in fact it's not. It's a constructed threat. It's interesting. Social threats fall in between. So people are making fun of me at Facebook or I hear a rumor that my boss doesn't think that much of me. That's a real threat. It's not a real threat of something that's going to bite my leg, but it's a real threat in that if I don't attend to it and deal with it, I might find myself slipping below others in a social hierarchy. And then I'm ended up, you know, with nothing. Yeah. If, if, if you ask people, what would you rather? Um, a terrible injury, and people get described all these terrible injuries, or utter humiliation so that, you know, nobody, nobody respects you anymore. You post incredibly racist stuff online and everybody hates you. People say, I'd rather lose my leg. Wow. That's but huge. But wouldn't, but, but wouldn't you? I, I don't know. I have to think about that. <laughs> I, but, I mean, I think 
that so many of us have become very outwardly referenced yeah. as time has passed because of social media, because of the desire for social comparison, that if we base all that we believe ourselves to be on external forces, then we're kind of empty inside. So I think that the challenge becomes the healthy balance of the two. Yes, we all want to be liked. And at the same time, if we rely only on external validation and no uh, understanding or appreciation of our own skills or strengths, um, we're going to be pretty unhappy if, if, if yeah. we don't. And there's a lot of space in between that. So you could want to be liked in a sort of simple uh, very limited, unconstructive way, you can want to be respected by doing things that will, you know, make people want to work with you and want to, want to appreciate your work, take you seriously. You may want to be loved by your family and your friends. And I think some of these desires could be shallow. I think some of these are quite deep and important, but you can't shut them off. A, a, a creature who says, I don't care if anybody likes me is, is the person who one day is going to wake up and the whole tribe is left and they're sitting in the desert alone and they're dead. Yeah. Well, that that this, the sense of belonging, I think, is what drives most of us to to be a part of some tribe. It is at 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 every level, and maybe this is one lesson of psychology and social neuroscience and other fields, which is how important belonging, being part of things, being respected, being loved, are to people. How how savage it is to be lonely, to be humiliated, to be shunned. Um, I think we see a little bit about this in debates about cancel culture and, you know, there's a lot of debates to talk about, but, but I, I'm always struck by people who, who have been canceled sometimes for good reasons, sometimes bad, and they describe it as death and, and they're not wrong to for a creature like us, that is death to have your friends no longer want to be seen with you. Yeah. Let's take a pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about Dr. Paul Bloom and his work, please visit paulbloom.net. We're talking about the newest book, Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. We'll be right back. Hang on. Before we break, I want to talk about an astounding statistic regarding our hair. Did you know that tens of millions of Americans experience thinning hair? It's common, even normal, and not widely talked about. If you're like me, the experience is scary and stressful, which just adds to the problem. Hair loss can be caused by several factors like metabolism, stress, lifestyle, genetics, aging, and hormonal shifts like menopause. Nutrafol goes beyond genetics to target the factors that impact hair growth. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement that's clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage for men and women. Thanks to Nutrafol, I've grown fuller, healthier, and happier hair from the inside out. Now is the time to have lovelier locks and better well-being with Nutrafol. Start by visiting Nutrafol.com to take the hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations. Thinning is different for men and women. Nutrafol has multiple unique formulas that provide exactly what we need based on our biology and age. 
Every product is physician-formulated using natural, medical-grade ingredients for reliable results that I have experienced firsthand. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. In clinical studies, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage and 86% of women saw improved growth after six months of use. What I love most about Nutrafol is that in addition to beautiful hair, the ingredients also help me have better sleep, stress response, skin, and nails. Who wouldn't want that? Join me and millions of others who are standing up for our strands with Nutrafol. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code HAPPINESS to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code HAPPINESS. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back exploring why we are psyched up, the brain science behind the human story. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest today, Paul Bloom. So Paul, prior to the break, we were talking about how devastating it is to be ostracized from the tribe, to feel as though we do not belong. And I think that might really build the case for that sense of belonging and connection being absolutely instrumental to good psychological health. I think so. There's a large literature looking at what makes people happy, what makes people healthy, what what makes people free of mental illness. And there's a lot of things going on. But social connections appear to be very high on the list. There was once a study done of the very happiest people in the world. These are people who, you know, you ask them how happy you are from one to 10, they say 10. You ask them a million other ways, they say the top. They describe their lives as magnificent in every way. And then these investigators looked at these super happy people and said, what do do they have in common? And they have all sorts of things in common. They tend to be healthy. They tend to to be extroverted. But the one thing that without exception, they had people who loved and respected them. They had friends, they had family, they had people who could make them safe, they had people who, who they felt saw them of value. And I think there's more to being happy than that, but if you lack that, it's very hard to be a very happy person. I would agree. And, and being a happy person doesn't mean you are a person that has not lived the life of hard knocks. No, absolutely not. And, and in some way, the word happy, I, I, I hate using it because people can legitimately say, well, it's happy annoying. just means happy. It's an annoying <laughs> word. So, so, so let me take it back. And what I should say better is a rich and fulfilling life would involve social contact, would involve yeah. other people. A rich and fulfilling life, I think, involves happiness, but, um, but it also involves things like uh, meaningful pursuits and, um, and being a good person, morality. 
maybe having variety of experiences. I've, I've argued in my previous book, The Sweet Spot, for what you call motivational pluralism, which is that we don't want just one thing. We want many things. But I just to go back to what you were asking, I think for all of the things we want, um, some degree of good social contact is necessary for them. And that's why we all got so effing crazy during, <laughs> during the pandemic, right? We, yes. were, we were cut off from life force. Yes, yes. People say how crises bring us together. And there are all these case studies of how earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis bring communities together in this blissful moment that, that they were, people remember from the rest of their lives how they show people at their best. But pandemics are an exception because pandemics pull us apart. They isolate us. They make us afraid of other people. They make us afraid of people who are different from us. And they are sort of a unique curse because they take from us, you know, the one thing that we most want, particularly we most want in times of trouble, which is other people. And you compound that with a very complex political climate that was polarizing and continues to yeah. be polarizing. And you sort of get the sense of where we're at, why we, why we are where we are. Yeah. I'm very sympathetic to the argument made by people like Steven Pinker and others that on the whole, the world is getting better and better. And there's always indicated, it's surprising as it seems, everything from world hunger to, to treatment of minorities is getting better and better on the whole. And that we tend to sort of blow a, think of the good old days and how much better they are. But for me, one big exception is political polarization. If, if you look at the political polarization right now, it is uniquely horrible. You know, it used to be that in the United States, the two political parties, they people would be friends, they would intermarry, they would go to the same bars and clubs, <laughs> see the same movies. And and now there there's this extraordinary animosity bisecting the country. And and I, I'm not the first to say that this is not good news. And it's not limited to just the United States. I mean, there no. are other countries that are experiencing the same thing which is why I'm going back to what you were saying about a pandemic being a separator, right? At, at the time when we need to be most connected and then you compound it with political issues, wanting to point fingers at the how and why of why, why we got into this pandemic to begin with. And you've got a, uh, a poop show. <laughs> I'm not going to say I the think, other word. I think that's right. I, not all countries had a political falling apart due to the pandemic. I'm in Canada. And maybe because we have more than two political parties and because the political parties are not that different, it didn't lead to the serious political schisms you found in the States. But I think you're right. In the States, it's sort of a perfect storm. You have something which isolates us, that stresses us. And then you have two political parties basically pushing against each other to capture our attention and, and, and make us support them. And, and it's lead to some terrible ramifications that we're still living with now. You know, it's interesting you bring up Canada because I had the good fortune of being able to go to Canada during the pandemic, you know, with, with, with much fuss, I must add, but I was able to go. And I noticed how people just, they were believers, even if they didn't necessarily believe in vaccinating for the vaccination for themselves, people were pretty respectful you know, about wearing a mask. There wasn't the kind of strife for the most part that you had down South. Yeah. I, I th this is my experience too. I spent the pandemic in, in Toronto and that is my experience as well. Not without exception. 
And, you know, some I've seen my share of Toronto YouTube videos of people taking off their mask on a bus and fist fights. And, <laughs> oh, God. And, 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 and there's been demonstrations and there's been um, actually some very well-known demonstrations where truckers uh, drove to, to the Capitol. And, and so I don't want to sort of oversimplify things. You, you might also say just to defend just, you know, I'm. I'm spend most of my life in America. So just to defend Americans, part of the reason why things go so smoothly in Canada is that Canadians, for better or worse, I think are somewhat more docile. We are we are more prone to just do what the government says we do. And in a lot of cases, that's terrific. And maybe in some cases you say it would be, you know, a country that has some more backbone is in a better situation in some other cases. But I think in, in Canada, you have a more socialized society where people truly believe in the greater good. There's much more of an ethos of that. Yes, That's right. yes. Whereas here, it's the greater good of my tribe, <laughs> you yeah. know, my side of the tracks. Yeah, and and in, in in fact, so part of that has to do with sort of general difference in Canada and the United States, and part of it brings us back to the political polarity that that um, that you're talking about, which is you know the most liberal person in you know Cambridge, Massachusetts, or Berkeley, California, might have great socialist views and believe in the greater good, but not for Trump voters. They right. could just they could just burn. Yeah. And and the Trump voters don't think very much of uh, of the tree huggers, you know, that, that they see around them either. So so the, the the polarity makes people mean. Maybe they're very sort of caring and loving towards their own tribe, but it makes them mean towards everybody else. Yeah. Which I wanna, you know, take it back to our brains and perception and the implicit bias that you write about in your book, Psych, the story of the human mind. So, yeah. So, so a good, my, my book reviews every aspect of psychology, tries to do everything that, that that's central important. And one thing that's really important is the psychology of race, the psychology, how we think about race, how we think about ethnicity, how we think about groups. And I say a couple of things grounded by trying to ground myself here at a very, very most recent findings. Um, sometimes we think in terms of race and groups and ethnicities, and it's not terribly bad. We make generalizations and stereotypes. And in some way, that's kind of inevitable. Um, if you believe that that Dutch people are taller than Japanese people, well, you got a stereotype in your head. And it's one that's true. You just picked it up <laughs> through patterns and environment. Honestly, I, I, I'm Jewish. If you think Jews are more likely than, than than most to become lawyers, that's true too. There's also things you have in your head that are just true because different groups of people pursue different ways of life and eat different foods. And it's not clear that knowing all this is necessarily terrible. It might even be part of a rich cosmopolitan society where you're going to say, well, different groups on average bring different things to the table. And this is terrific. But then there's the, the dark side. And the dark side is what you would call uh, in-group bias. And even in children, in some studies, even in babies, we are savagely, strongly motivated to break the world up into us versus them. You know, you, you take a bunch of school kids and you randomly, they see it's random, you randomly give half of them red t-shirts and half of them blue t-shirts. And later on, they'll say, oh, if the kid gets a red t-shirt, oh, the red t-shirt group is better. I don't like the blue t-shirt group. You know, even a flip of a coin, people yeah. split people apart. And so this, this very, this deep willingness to break us up into us versus them, into competing groups, I think provides a sort of psychological basis for, for what, what in some countries expands to extreme partisanism, partisanism uh, like in the States, and mildly less so in some other places. Fascinating. I could speak with you for hours and hours on 
all the topics that you write about. And this one is particularly worthy and probably we should do more because we've only scratched the surface of Psych, the story of the human mind. So come back, hang out. I would love to. We'll do more. I would love to. We're out of time. My guest today has been Professor Paul Bloom. You can find out more about Paul and his work at paulbloom.net. Once again, we've been speaking about Psych, the story of the human mind. You can connect with Paul on Twitter at paulbloom at Yale, although he's no longer at Yale. He's at the University of Toronto. <laughs> the Twitter handle never dies. <laughs> the Twitter handle never dies. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Dr. Paul Bloom, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mangeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.